0: This is the Touchy Subjects podcast. My name is Aaron Billings and I'm your host. On this episode, we're going to discuss the church's response to the social justice movement with Dr. Cecilia Greenbar, Pastor JW Hall, and Dante Mascial. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, so the first question I want to ask, I want to direct to Dr. Greenfire. <laughs> Why do you think that social justice is a touchy subject?
1: Oh, Okay, social justice is a touchy subject in 2021 quite differently than it was in 1960, than it was after... the reconstruction period, because our society has changed. And what was a social justice movement of the 1950s and 60s trying to get the right to vote, um, being able to use any restroom that you want, not based on the color of your skin, that was a different social justice. And today, everyone has piled on, every interest group has piled on, to the social justice issues for African-Americans that we saw in the 50s and in the 60s. So it's different today because now you have groups that are, have, have, as I would say, jumped on a bandwagon because they saw the progress that was, of, that was earned back in the 60s the 50s and the 60s. And they want to ride that wagon. The other aspect about why social justice is a touchy subject in 2021. And I'm a minister. So everything, let me preface this, everything that I have to say, I speak as a prophet of God. So I'm a Christian representing God first. And so The social justice of today, the movements that we see today, I think is very, um, convoluted. And I think that there is some darkness that is masquerading. I, I know that there, from what I've been reading and researching, there are entities beyond our nation that are taking advantage of the generational sin in our nation and are exploiting it. So the social justice of 2021 has interest coming in from other shores with other agendas that are hiding in the shadows, as it were, to what we, my grandparents, would have called social justice. And so it makes it very difficult for those of us who who stand in an uncompromisingly Christian way to say, wait a minute, you're not going to bamboozle me by acting as this as if this is really all social justice, because it's not. It is a very dark mixture of a lot of different entities. There you have it.
0: <laughs> Very well said. So so Dante, I'm gonna ask you from your perspective, which event of twenty twenty was the social catalyst for the social justice movement?
2: Uh for sure, the George the George Floyd uh, murder. We'll call it what it is. Um in my lifetime there have been hundreds or thousands of George Floyd's uh but I think this one did it for me because it was so blatant and so public um again as a black man to be completely honest was not surprised of what like what what I saw what I physically like what I saw on my my, my tv screen or the, my phone but like the fact that it was done in front of everyone was kind of like that's that's different um because like I I feel it and see it in, in like certain sects and it's like, okay, I noticed that, but for it to be done on that stage in front of all those people the way that it was, that that's what struck me about about the uh-huh. the whole incident. So George Floyd and the fact that it was so public and like no remorse, no wrongdoing in, in the minds of, of the officers.
0: Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think you know, and this is coming from me being as a white person, but just my observation, black people have been get, getting killed forever and COVID being at the same time as what we were seeing with George Floyd, us all being home, not having anything to do because we're all on quarantine, it makes it that much more visible. And so I feel like that was the catalyst that really started that movement for 2020, because you can't deny it anymore. Um, That's, I mean, that's just my opinion. Uh, Pastor JW, as white Christians, we've seen what the black community has gone through for years, and very few white evangelical churches acknowledged it. From your point of view, mm-hmm. what happened in 2020 that made white evangelicals finally want to be an ally?
3: I think it was pretty much the same the same thing, you know. I think COVID being alone, being away from our church, our community, our 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 connections that we have made have really allowed even pastors to take a look inside and and realize Okay, there's something mm. wrong. There's something broken. Um, so with with you know being a white pastor in a predominantly white area and um, we have a predominantly white crowd at church even, um, what was what was helpful for me is staying connected and making sure that my group of friends all had different color skins, spoke different languages. Staying close and connected to them because just as I don't want to be the smartest man in my group of friends, I don't want to be the richest man in my group of friends. I don't want to be the just the same color as everybody in my group of friends. Um, And and what it did was it took a conversation for me uh, because for for me personally, I, I haven't experienced what it's like to be a black man being pulled over by a police officer. My dad is a police officer. I love him. He's, he's done an incredible job. He loves, he loves his job. He loves to protect all people. He loves to serve all people. Um, but at the same time, I've had friends that have been pulled over, um, black, um, friends that pulled over, pulled out of their car, thrown on the hood, like being questioned about the houses they lived in because they live in a nice neighborhood. Um, and without having any experience, I was always afraid to try to talk from not not have an experience. So when I finally opened up and had a conversation with one of my great friends in Seattle, um, Jermaine, he, he was telling me, he said, he said, listen, it's OK to get it wrong. He said, the very fact that you're talking about it is helpful. He said, the very the very fact that you're willing to have these conversations is you can be wrong. You don't have to have the experience just showing that you're coming beside me, coming to support me shows that you love and care for me. And I think a lot of pastors realize that Um, uh, even my pastor here in in Longview, Texas, we we had a similar scenario, similar situation where he saw for youth. I called and had a FaceTime so that my students could hear uh, perspective from a black man speaking into their lives. I wanted them to hear straight from the source and what it did was it allowed our church to open up an opportunity to have mm-hmm. further conversations. Um, there was there was there was finally a place where we were okay with not knowing everything and being okay with not having the experience, but just coming together as a church family and letting God work through that. And I think that's just what God's done across the board in a lot of places. Uh,
0: you touched on something, and I had, I had a conversation with your wife, Kayla, uh, a while back. And I was so impressed with how your church handled, again, being a predominantly white church, not having much diversity. Would you mind sharing mm-hmm. um, kind of what you guys did as a church to, mm-hmm. to kind of help with that?
3: Yes, I would love to. And it was... Like I wept, I cried uh, because it was it was such a such a cool moment that that we might have had a few people get upset about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was okay. Um, They went did their thing and, you know, bless them, pray for them, pray that God can find them where they are. Um, But what it really did, I remember sitting in the in the parking lot, having a conversation with an older white gentleman afterwards crying saying just how sorry he was for his whole life, um, not ever being willing to listen. So here's what our pastor did. Um, he, he talked about it. And we have an incredible uh, black pastor here in East Texas. His name is Pastor Eric Love. Um, I'll give him a shout out. He is phenomenal. Just just gifted. Um, a, a man of God. A, a prophet to East Texas. Um, just such incredible leadership! I tell people all the time if I didn't go to the <laughs> church that I was at, mm-hmm. he would be my pastor. Um, and he's he's pretty good friends with our pastor. And he called him and said, you know, kind of the same scenario. I don't, I don't know. And he said, will you come and just have a conversation with me? And it was the coolest thing because it wasn't like we were inviting him to come and and preach uh, uh, an evangelistic word, but they came. We put a rug on the platform. They sit in two chairs and they had a conversation as two brothers of God talking about the the pain, um, the pain that the black community has faced for so long. And he, it was a big thing here was the the Black Lives Matter, um, and and people people you know being of the white community, people would say, well, all lives matter, and and so th- th- what he said blew my mind and everyone else's mind in that room. He said, he said, you know, you are absolutely right. He said, all lives do matter." Mm-hmm. He said, but but look at it like this. We all live in the same neighborhood. We all have beautiful houses. We have incredible houses all in the same neighborhood. All of your houses are important. They house you, they, they take care of you. He said, but, but my house is on fire. He said, the fire department's coming. They don't need to put water on your house. They don't need to, to put fire because your house isn't on fire. He said, right now, my house is on fire and I need people to come and stand behind me and put the fire out with me. And when, when I heard that, I think when the majority of the people of our church are that it just completely shifted their mindset to realize this isn't about saying that only black lives matter. But this is about saying that black lives matter because at this time we need to come together. When you're hurt as a body, when you break your hand, what do you do? The first thing you do is you take your other hand and you go to support it. It's like the, the, the black community has been broken and we as a church need to go and support it. It's not saying that this hand doesn't matter, but it's saying that this hand is broken. It's hurting. It needs support. And we need to focus on that area until it's healthy Till it's healed, until we're all back to what God truly wants us to be. And when He was mentioning that, it was I could have sat there all day and just listened to the wisdom He was a He was a Marine back in Vietnam War, um, and he had, he had went and fought for our country. He knew what it was to to live and to to support America, but also know that he wasn't always supported. And to be able to stand in front of our congregation and just speak the truth of God's love for all of His people, it really opened the door for so many more conversations to have, so much more community to happen outside of the local church and really be the big church that we're all called to do. It sparked something in our area to where we were meeting at the courthouse. He was uh, he was speaking not only at our church, but the courthouse he was leading um, with, with police officers and other black pastors and white pastors all together praying for true unity in our city. And it was just awe, awe inspiring.
0: That's awesome. To say the least. I, I think that's a really good response. I think more churches could learn from that for sure. Um, Dr. Greenbar, knowing the history of the social justice movement and what transpired last year, as black Christians, what would you want your white Christian counterparts to be doing during this time?
1: Oh, that's very simple. I would like for them to identify themselves. I would really like for them to identify themselves and make clear to at least to the rest of the body of Christ, who they are and what they stand for. Uh, And the reason why I say that, I think it was last week I was listening to a brother that's in another stream and he was doing a devotional and he quoted George Bonner. And I know all of you know who George Bonner, um, the research researcher, George Bonner. And he gave two quotes that George Bonner had from some surveys that he had done. And one of the quote, one of the percentages, he said that, you know, over 50% of white evangelicals do not believe that the Bible is authoritatively the word of God. Ooh, And then the next quote was that, you know, I think it was like 50% of the body of Christ didn't believe in Holy Spirit. Well, if I go to the first um, statistic, when I heard him read it, my first question was, can somebody please tell me who are these white evangelicals? can can you give me a name of the pastor? Can you give me the name of the church? If not, you know, at least the mega churches, at least those that are, with great influence in our country who have influence with senators and representatives and owners of major businesses. Who are these people? I, I don't really know. You can't just look at a white person and assume that every white person is what they call white evangelicals. I don't know who these people are. Um so I don't you can't deal with everyone just based on the color of their skin because there are Um, people who are not in that category. So I think the first thing I would like for my brothers and sisters who are Caucasian, I would like for you all to identify yourself. Um, I would like to know who you are and I would like to know what you believe because if George Bonner's statistics are true and if it is true that more than 50% of white evangelicals do not believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. On what basis can we even make an appeal to that group of people if we cannot, as Christians, make it on the appeal of what the Scripture says about how we're supposed to treat one another? One of the things that made Dr. Martin Luther King's Mm -hmm. movement so powerful was everything was based on Scripture, so he was able to communicate with other races, because everybody knew clearly that he was speaking from a biblical perspective. They knew. But I think now one of the difficulties for having real authentic A conversations and B follow up conversations are nice. But if it all ends at the coffee table, it's not going to amount to change. And before you can make change, we need to know who you are. Who, who are you? Who are these people? Who are you? And what do you believe in so that we will know? Because whatever it is you believe, then speak up, because then how do we hold anyone accountable if we don't know who they are or what they stand for? And that's on both sides. But especially I just really would like to know who are these white evangelicals? as opposed to white charismatics, white Pentecostals, who are these people? And then my next question would be, okay, I know that in most places, the history of America has been very strategic in keeping out the contributions of black people, African-Americans, black people, historically, but where have you been that you don't know about the Tuskegee Airmen or the Experiments That were done The syphilis experiment Where have you been Where have you been Do you not know who Carter G. Woodson is Do you not know Who some of the authors have been Throughout the ages that have talked about What it's like To be black In America And the and the reality of having to live this Dichotomy of, of The society where, where have you been that you don't know this? Um, And are you being honest about not ever seeing rage against a person based solely on the color of their skin? My brother talked about the situation with George Floyd being the catalyst. What I'd like to know, and his name is escaping me now, but Trayvon Martin, the young man with the... Trayvon Martin with the hoodie. Mm-hmm. okay so we all know what happened there. There was no outrage there. he he was not trespassing or breaking into anyone's home. Why wasn't that a catalyst? I uh, so at the same time, at the same time, I think that there was anger from black people towards this, amorphous group of white evangelicals, because number one, how can you not know, how can you not see what is blatant every day in American society? And then on top of it, there was a whole lot of politicizing of what was happening um, during 2020. And when I, when I could not watch, some people binge watch terror and horror. I can't. Nope. So when I did see what happened to George Floyd, I knew that this was happening to him because he was black and the police officer clearly likes to exert his power. And the other police officers around were clearly too scared to say anything or to help. But that's not the first time we've seen this. So, For 2020, it's not a clear cut path to all of the disruption in America. So that's, Aaron, what I would like. I would like to know who I'm talking to. I like for people to identify themselves, say who you are and what you stand for. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? His identity and purpose was important to him. And I'd like to know who these people are, what do you stand for, so we can hold you accountable in the public square. Well, that's that's a great
0: word, pastor. <laughs> uh, I feel like you should preach that sermon across the nation. Uh, Dante, I receive that in Jesus' name. Dante, y'all make it happen. <laughs> y'all make it happen. All right. Okay, so so Dante, I'm going to pass that same question to you. What would you want your white Christian counterparts to be doing during this time?
2: Oh man. Um, initially, I read that question and I was like, "Where do I start?" Um, not because I think. Um, that white evangelicals or, or pe- white people that non-black people don't even think that it's people that have an issue but I just I think a lot of it is ignorance um, and just I'll talk it up, I'll, I'll give people the benefit of the doubt and say ignorance some of it is blatant, some of it is it can be put in all kind of categories but we'll just give everyone the benefit of the doubt and say that it's ignorance um, and as a, as a human being, I understand that there are some areas in my life that I just am ignorant about or don't do well with. Uh, my grandfather died last year and at 29, he was the first person that was close to me that died. Like I realized a lot of people have had close mm-hmm. deaths in their life. My first one was at 29. And I always struggled with when people died, like, man, what do I say to this person? I don't know if I say this, is it going to trigger a thought? If I say this, is it going to make them feel a certain way? So like, I never spoke to people after they had Mm. a death in their family. And then last year happened Mm. to me and I'm like, okay, I'm here. Like, I didn't feel upset when people didn't contact me. I didn't feel upset when people did, but I, until I was in that situation, I didn't know how I would respond um, and how things would be for me. So I just chalk it up to ignorance. So to parallel that statement, um, I think a lot of people just are bystanders and they don't know what to say or what to do because they're not the ones in the situation. Um, So you have that group of people and then you have the group of people who for some reason, think that they're experts in the category and <laughs> and feel like it's not really as bad as you say mm. that it is. Um, meanwhile, we're living this day in, day out, year in, year out, and quite frankly, your whole life. Um, honestly, to a point to where sometimes you become like... It's like, oh, this, this, this is life. Like, you don't really have expectations outside of what is actually happening because you're like, here, here, here we go again. Like, it's just a yeah. cycle that literally never stops. <clears throat> um, actually, this is the first time that I can think of it. Think of it, but I mean, every time we hear about a death or a murder, there's like another one before the case is even over. So it's like the the cycle just never ends. It goes from One murder to the next, to the next, to the next. We're talking three or four in a week. Um, And it comes to a point where you're just like, you don't even want to hear it anymore, but you know that it's life. You know it's reality. Um, But I I think the people in the ignorant camp, they can be informed and enlightened, and they can be educated. Those people are willing Mm -hmm. to be educated. Um, You have the people in the camp who are... um, experts in, in their opinion and they you cannot educate them because they know in their mind they know where they stand they know what it is and they know how
0: mm-hmm.
2: to navigate this my issue with that is you don't have to navigate it because you're you're on your side there's nothing to navigate you're, you're seeing it but mm-hmm. you're not living it um so i think it, it's extremely difficult to see people uh and hear people tell you how you should feel or how you should respond or how it's really not that bad or how the media is gone out of proportion. And possibly, I mean, that, that may be the case in some cases, but you're saying that from a seat that you're like, your stance doesn't change. Like you don't, you're not affected. Nothing. That's, that's, that's the, the way I'm trying. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. You're not affected by it. Um, your your children are not the ones that are asking questions or, uh, being told what to or what not to wear. Um, I I live in I'm from Cleveland, Tennessee. Like there's no real thugs or gangsters or gangs in that city. But like growing up, my mom would like get upset if I wore a do rag outside of my house. Like this is for my hair. This is to make sure that my hair looks good. But like you don't walk out of the house with that because people might think that you are trying to do something. the the, the perception of you is there is is what it is because of what you're wearing and i don't as a whole don't know any of my white friends who have had to deal with not wearing certain type of clothes and being uh assumed to be a a thug or a gangster um simply because of what they have on their head or type of shoes that they wear um and that's like that's that's one thing that i can make and that i can Trace back to like elementary school. Um, and the list is so long that I can't name them all. Uh, and some of them are ingrained that I haven't even realized that I'm having to to act in a certain way or dress a certain way. Um, but I think in order to enlighten people, or educate people, you have to, you have to be willing. And some people will, no matter how far it gets, no matter deep the issue is no matter how blatant Mm -hmm. it is uh, whether it's on tv or in your city or in your neighborhood um, they're just Mm -hmm. not going to see it so there's there's nothing in my opinion except for a move from god a move of god which i believe can happen and has happened on people like I've, i've seen it i've seen people like in servicing like the scales have finally been removed from their eyes and like i'm sorry I'm sorry, you know, like the, like, um, like JW was saying, like, you know, people weeping and it's like, you've, you may not understand, but you, at least you see, or you're empathizing mm-hmm. with this. Um, but I guess to answer your question, you just, you have to be willing. And if you're not willing, then there's, I don't really see much change that can come.
0: Yeah. Um, I think you have to be so, teachable first. And, um, I think from my observation and having a lot of conversations with my non-white friends, um, to use your term, uh, I know, you know, the white church, they are, if they are talking about it at all, they're doing things like what JW was saying, which I think is great. I think more of that has to happen. Some churches have not acknowledged it at all. And to me, that feels unhealthy. It feels unsafe. Because you have to think, you know, if we are truly the body of Christ, our black brothers and sisters are hurting. They are grieving. And we have to be empathetic, like you said, Dante. Like, empathy is definitely a desired skill um especially if you claim to be a follower of christ um and so one question that i'd like to ask all of you um would be what are some things or systems that we can put in place in church to promote racial diversity and inclusivity and you know just promote healthy conversations about these topics. Pastor Greenbar, I'll start with you.
1: Well, again, it it starts with identification. Not everyone who loves Jesus loves the people that Jesus loves. So I think we should approach this with a very strategic and divine insight. Uh, The Bible does tell us that we are to know no man by the flesh, but to know everyone by the spirit. One of the things that made Dr. King's work as effective as it was, was that he was not solely depending upon Christian pastors, Black or white, because, you know, Black pastors, they didn't like King. They love him now, but he was not really their favorite person. And so he was looking for those who could understand and to the point of not intellectually understanding, but to the point of wanting to see a change happen. And there were people involved that they didn't say they were Christians, but they were concerned about their brothers and sisters. So in terms of what we can expect in the body of Christ, we have to first do as the Lord said, don't don't look at things based on um, what's on the outward appearance. Let's put some expectations on those and accountability On those who will admit and by their own testimony and witness will say, I actually am a disciple of Jesus and I love the people that Jesus loves. And so I'm going to use my teaching time, i.e. pastors, apostles, prophets, um, evangelists, whatever your position, I'm going to use my teaching moments to teach what I say I believe so that my people will therefore then be able to take the word in, meditate on it, and then the word begins to live in them. There has to be a mind change. Let this mind be in you. That's also in Christ Jesus. So we need to rethink our teaching. Not (laughs) when I say we, you know what I mean. So that's a place to be that's a place to begin. the The leader needs to say who he and she, identify yourself, say what you believe, and teach what you believe. And then back it up with sustainable action that is scalable if 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 we have churches, we i e Christians, have churches around the United States and many churches send missionaries to foreign soil. What are you exporting as your message? When a missionary goes to another country, what do they say? What do they teach? If we can train missionaries to communicate a consistent message of the gospel and how the gospel gets lived out in their culture. Why can't That's we do that here? An excellent point. Why can't we do that here? <laughs> so we can, we let's not get selective amnesia here in our, on our own shores. So we 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 identify who we are and then we teach to our people what we say we believe and then we put some action behind it. We put our money behind it. We put our voice behind it. We put our presence behind it. I think every, at least every major city and perhaps even, um, you know, not every metropolitan, but most cities that have police departments, they have chaplains, (laughs) they have chaplains. And the chaplain should do more than just, you know, show up when there's like this, you know, newsworthy tragedy. But what what impact is the chaplain making on the officers? It's you don't tell me how officers go through training. Your training is as valuable as the mm-hmm. accountability that you place to make sure people are actually doing what you've trained them to do. So if you can have chaplains for mm-hmm. the National Football League, if you can have chaplains for police departments and everything, every other entity that you can imagine what are the chaplains there to do we're not psychiatrists <laughs> the ones who are not psychiatrists so we're not just there to sit and just let people talk 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 because the bible says that we can be right in our own mind but it is the word so if we're chaplains on police or for police force what are we doing are we identifying what we believe or or like in many work environments where people can be inappropriate you know the water cooler conversations that are inappropriate to other employees coworkers and then some people they don't say anything they just listen y'all know what i mean are, are we doing that when we're being deployed as chaplains as as spiritual voices in our communities Let's stop hiding in the shadows about what we really think and what we really believe and start implementing, teaching the people, being held accountable ourselves, and then holding our people accountable. I can only imagine in many... Okay, so the average size church in America is right topping at about 125. So let's talk the very small percentage of mega churches. Can you imagine... Mega churches have mega buildings and mega buildings have mega mortgages Mm -hmm. and mega bills. Right. But they, they can do it because they have the people in there with surplus. You follow what I'm saying? So you don't get surplus by working minimum wage jobs. I don't care if you do hike the minimum wage up to $15 Mm -hmm. an hour, you're not getting surplus from that. So these people have influence. So when a leader identifies what they believe and begin to let's just take that segment of your congregation and say, look, this is what I believe. And if you are on this board, that board, you're in charge of this, you have influence here. I'm expecting you brother, sister member of this influential church to start being Mm -hmm. a change agent right where you are. I'm glad y'all praise the Lord on Sunday, but I'm expecting you to be a Christian after you leave this building and demonstrate change. We got to start the grassroots change and let's start it in the boardrooms because that's where decisions are
0: made. 100% correct. Absolutely, I 100% agree. Um, Pastor J. Dubb, what systems or thought processes do you think would be good to promote diversity and inclusion?
3: So, like it this hit me I was had some I was having my I, being a pastor it is very, very easy to fall into the um, study prep as your personal time with Jesus. Um, and it doesn't quite work like that um, and and I'm learning as I, as I grow and as I go that I need my own time a separate from what I'm studying to bring to what God has in store for the people. And I was reading um, Nehemiah. I was reading Nehemiah. And what I have realized is um, Nehemiah, you know, when he goes to rebuild the wall, what happens and I read it and it hit me. I highlighted it. I wanted to share it because I think it is I think it is something to be implemented across the board. What we have ran into as a society, as uh, I'll say, not as a society, probably because, we, we, you know, we have to be separate. Um, of the world, because God has called us to be separate. He said to be in it, but not be of it. Um, And and I think what that looks like a lot of times is we have gotten to a place in America where we don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be challenged. If we do, we'll get up and leave. Um, I I, I spoke this last night to my, my teenagers. I said, and and I said, y'all, and, and I, I was kind of playing with them, but I was kind of being the, the pastor that they needed in the moment. I said, we're doing a Bible challenge right now where you carry the Bible everywhere you go. I mean, if you go to the restaurant, you go to school, you go to everywhere you go, you carry your Bible. Because what it does is it sparks conversation. I said, "And whoever can tag me in the most photos by the end of the month carrying their Bible, I will give you $50 gift card to wherever you want. So... After, and we have a youth group of about uh, with everyone there at the same time, we probably have close to 80 students. Um, And, you know, obviously they're not all there at the same time, but they've all at least saw our messages, our Instagram posts. And I got up and I said, you guys don't like to be challenged so much that you won't even take your Bible Mm. to a restaurant and take a picture of it Mm. for $50. And what I have realized is that this isn't just something that our teenagers face, but it's something that, that I think technology, um, I think that the ease of everything at our fingertips um, has really has really hurt um, where the where God is trying to take the church. And what I mean by that is, if we're not being challenged by the Word of God, um, we we have. We you know we have the thirty minute or thirty second um, clips of an incredible pastor that comes on you know Instagram and those are awesome, but I think a lot of times what happens is we look for 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 fame over influence, um, and we look to be famous. And what makes us famous is not talking about the touch touchy subjects. Um, what makes us famous is is making people happy. Um, if we can make people happy, make them feel good. People gather around that. And we have, as as a lot of pastors, we have searched for fame over influence. But what our influence is, is the actual word of God. We've gotten away a lot of times from what the Bible talks about um, to really make people feel good. But like what I'm doing, and it's hard, uh, especially for Mm -hmm. students, um, but what our pastor is doing, he told us on Tuesday, he said, I'm tired of the church formula. He said, I, I don't want to come in and have a three worship songs and then have a twenty-seven minute word and then close us out. He said, I want the move of God. He said, and he told us he told our, our entire church, he said, I don't even care if you don't come on church on Sunday. He said, I want our prayer on Saturday to be the room that is the fullest. Um, And and what he is doing in those moments is we're having an opportunity to get in and actually live out what God is calling us to do. And if we preach what the word says, we have to preach the whole word. Um, We can't just preach the things that sound good or the things that that people want to hear. But when you preach the whole word, you find this passage in Nehemiah where it says, "Now now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Um, There were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And what's happening is the great outcry is describing an economic injustice among the Jewish people. Um, And this had been going on for years and no one was doing anything about it. But Nehemiah had been placed by God to lead these people so he realizes that him as the leader, us as pastors, as white evangelicals, as black evangelicals, as Hispanic, Asian, whatever that is, anytime we see something that is wrong, it is our God-given authority to fix it. Um, And that's what he does. He comes in here and he fixes it. He takes away those injustices. He starts taking away the the mortgages on the land and the the property that these people had had unjustly. And and when you can realize that the entire Bible is about all of God's people, and you preach the whole thing, you find issues and topics like this that are just as applicable today Mm -hmm. as they were then. And when we can actually preach the whole word and allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us, that's the things we need to implement. And that's, I think sure. I think those are the things that um, people truly long for
0: I agree. and wanna see. Um, mm-hmm. Dante, I'm gonna kind of pivot this a little bit because you and I, uh, Dante, if you know him, he's one of the best drummers you'll hear. Uh, And he and I actually toured together for many years. Um, And because of touring in churches, Mm. um, we've seen a lot. We've seen Mm -hmm. large mega churches. We've been on those stages. We've also been crammed into the tiny churches where there's barely enough room on stage for a drum set. I think we did a few of those uh, with you, right? <laughs> uh, we've also played at major festivals. And so we've seen a lot. Um, and so, Dante, I guess, you know, based off of what you've seen as a touring musician in many different church outlets, um, what would you say from that particular lens would help the church to promote inclusivity and Diversity.
2: Um I believe like <laughs> first of all, my wife would be extremely proud of me. I talk, talk, talk. She's like, don't go on and talk for an hour. <laughs> so i'll try to be short with everything. So shout out to my wife, to us, oh, yeah, okay. short, Um <clears throat> I honestly my answer is simple. Just ask. Um every community is different. Um, every church is different. I don't know what what anyone on this panel's church look like. I don't know how many people are there. Um, I don't know. I know JW said that his church is predominantly white, but like, I don't know what your church is. If you go to a a predominantly black church, that's a whole different church than probably what JW goes to. So you ask the people, um, in my opinion. I don't speak for every black person when I'm asked a question. You can ask me something, I give you an answer. You go back to another black person and say, well, my friend Dante said this. They don't care they don't know me <clears throat> so you you have to you have to work with the people that you're with so you have to ask them their heart ask them what they think ask them where they are um and work with that community whether it's the city whether it's the church um whether it's the staff whatever that community is you ask them mm-hmm. what 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 can what do you believe would help you or what can I do to help you uh, in this in this time in this period? And I believe it starts with honesty. I think a lot of time when it comes to church, <clears throat> being being a black person that goes to a predominantly well can't say predominantly white, but it's it's a multicultural church, but just still mostly white people. If you ask me a question in a black church going to be raw blunt, this is what we need to do I think if you take those same people and ask those people mm. in a multicultural or a predominantly white church, they, they feel like they have to be censored mm. and they're going to answer you but it's probably going to be the soft answer um, <clears throat> and I think that as a whole, we have to be honest um, you have to ask the tough mm. questions that most people are afraid to ask and you have to, in turn, answer those tough questions that most people don't want to answer truthfully because they're going to answer it then they're going to go home and say, well, they really need to do this and they really need to do that. And it's like, you had your opportunity yeah. to say it. Um, so I, I honestly think that if, if if people really sat down and had an agenda and the agenda is, hey, let's sit, whether it's at a table, whether it's at dinner, whether it's over food, whether it's in the sanctuary, wherever or whatever that may be, and say, hey, we're gonna come. Don't know how long it's gonna be, don't know how long it's gonna take. But we have a few really, really tough questions on the table. And we want everyone to be as honest as possible, with you know, with with a with a clear mind, um, and realizing that this is a conversation and for it to not get heated mm-hmm. and go places that it's not supposed to go as far as emotionally. But like if we if we really sit and have this conversation what can we do to help? Um, and I think that answer may be different for every church, and it may not. But for for the particular demographic and and uh, and for the majority of that church, I, I feel like if you can have that conversation, then you can at least start working toward what it is that needs to be done for those people. Um, but I think it's it starts with honesty. But I, I think. Furthermore, it starts with leadership. Absolutely. Acknowledging that the people need to be heard. Um, so that, that's that's, mm-hmm. that's what I would say. Uh, acknowledging the fact that some people will not speak unless spoken to. It's not that like they don't have anything to say, but they may not feel like they have a seat at the table. They may not feel like they have the voice or the opportunity or the knowledge or not not knowledge, but the, the position to speak. But if they're asked, they can they can tell you. So I think if, if leadership acknowledges the fact that something needs to be done, then it kinda not necessarily levels the playing field, but it brings mm-hmm. an ease to people being willing to speak about the things that they feel and the their heart. And I think a lot of times you'll realize that it's um, Maybe not, it may not be angry. It may be more hurt or just the fact that I feel misunderstood or the, the fact that like, 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 like I was saying earlier that you, you may just not feel heard. It's not that you mm. feel angry or upset. It's just, you feel like I'm just here and you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if leadership would be willing to, to lend just, just to put their hand out and say, Hey, we're here. We want to hear you.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Touchy Subjects podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Touchy Subjects, or you can join our Facebook group, the Touchy Subjects community. If you love the show, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that we can continue to bring you episodes that you enjoy. If you like this show, you can support our Buy Me A Coffee page. Thank you for listening. See you next time.